Hi everyone, and welcome to Happy Paws, presented by FearFreeHappyHomes.com. Happy Paws is a podcast by pet lovers for pet lovers. We take a scientific and evidence-backed approach to helping you understand your pet on a deeper level. In this episode, we're joined by Michael Shikashio, world-renowned trainer and expert in cases of canine aggression. We discuss the roots of aggression, what realistic expectations we can set for the dog and ourselves, and why coercion-based training can often worsen the behavior. Mike, it's so great for you to join us. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here. So the last time I saw you was at an IAABC conference, which was awesome. I remember you were running around, helping out. It seems like you're always staying super busy <laughs> at those. And I, it seems like everybody knows you too. That's the really cool thing is I love that you not only are helping pet guardians, but you are really someone who is training dog trainers, training dog behavior consultants, and your specialty is aggression. So how did that happen? How did you get that interest? How did you become specialized in that? I'd love to hear that story. Yeah. You know, it's, um, I always wanted a dog business of some kind. And so I started like getting into dog daycare. That was like my first aspiration. Let me open a dog daycare. And I was quickly, uh, I don't know, squashed by saying, all right, number one. And where I wanted to open one, it was like, you needed a 10 acre buffer zone around the place. So like, basically you had to buy an entire, you know, state of land to, to open anything. So I was like, all right, let me, let me look at other things. And while I was doing that, I was learning about behavior and training because I wanted to, you know, be good at managing groups of dogs. And then I caught the behavior bug. I'm like, this is, you know, so what I want to do, but I was also fostering a lot of dogs at the time. So working with rescues and one of the top reasons, which I'm sure, you know, is for owner surrender or dogs getting surrendered to shelters is behavior. So I thought, well, you know, what better way for me to help these dogs that, that I'm fostering or getting returned to rescues or ending up in rescue in the first place or shelter is to work on behavior, learn about behavior. And then I started getting the aggression bug and I start getting more and more of these difficult cases sent to me from the rescues. And a lot of them were aggression issues or, you know, dogs being reactive on leash and things like that. So um, one thing led to another and it all kind of shifted to aggression only. <laughs> so yeah, it's been quite a journey. I actually remember our first conversation when, well, our first conversation was at an APDT conference, but our second conversation where we had a nice sit down lunch and we were talking over at Tufts. And I remember us talking about an aggression case that I, I was working with at the time with multiple dog aggression and just how, how complicated that, that case was and how there are so many variables. And you just were very inspirational to me during that time because it was such a difficult case just on you know, remembering to break it down, to simplify, sometimes it can feel somewhat overwhelming for even the trainer. So, you know, only imagine how that feels as the pet parent in that situation. And especially when aggression gets serious as it was in that case. So I, I love that you really put it in perspective for me. And that's what I, I definitely know you're going to be able to do today for our listeners is putting it in perspective, giving us some science-backed ideas on how to deal with aggression, how to better understand it and how to address it in humane, kind ways that are also really effective. So I'm excited to be able to talk to you more about that. Yeah, and no, I appreciate those kind words as well. You know, it is because aggression is a very emotionally challenging 
a type of case in, in many, many situations. And uh, many times the owners that I'm working with or the guardians I'm working with are, are often very stressed. And it's because of all the unknowns and uncertainties and um, the potential risks and, and all the other variables that come along when a dog is showing aggression issues. So how would you define aggression? Great question, because it's one I get a lot. And there's, if you ask, you know, two dog trainers, what aggression is, you're going to get two different responses in many situations. And that's true with academia too. If you ask, you know, researchers, scientists, people working with aggression in animals, you're going to get different responses. And a lot depends on the, the science, you know, we're just talking about science backed uh, strategies. Uh, A lot of it depends on which lens of science you're looking through, whether it's ethology or applied behavior analysis or things like that. I like to keep it simple, as you know, (laughs) so uh, aggression is behavior. And that's the first thing to remember. It's behavior. It's not a dog. It's not the dog. It's not the dog's personality. It's their behavior they're showing. So, um, we might tell funny stories or sad stories, but that doesn't make us a funny or sad person, right? It's just what we're doing at that time. Same thing for dogs. They, they might show aggressive behavior in certain contexts at certain times. And the goal or function of that behavior is to increase distance from something that's threatening or they're scared of or is threatening their resources um, or eliminate that threat. Uh, but the goal is to make that thing go away with their behavior. So, and it's usually to increase distance. So very straightforward, simple way of thinking about it is that you know, they want that scary or threatening thing to go away uh, using that behavior. Um, there are some exceptions to that, which is dogs that are purpose-bred or selected for certain tasks like um, uh, livestock guardian dogs. They still want the threat to go away, but the underlying emotions or motivations are slightly different in those cases. Uh, and then you have, of course, predation, dogs chasing and grabbing things, um, little critters, Poor little critters, um, but there that's the motivation's different. I don't classify that actually as aggressive behavior. Um, it's certainly aggressive to the, to the critter being chased, but it's not uh, the underlying motivation and intent are actually to decrease distance when you think about it. So it's a little bit different, but um, still can be worked with. I love that thought. That's that's actually a really good way of putting it. It's yeah, with aggression, it's increasing distance. With predation, it is it's decreasing distance. And so, do you work with predation cases as well? I do, um, oftentimes because people have put it into the same category. So when somebody's reaching out for help, you know, a dog that's chasing cats or something like that, it's very similar in terms of in their mind what's happening as as far as you know, they don't want it to happen. Um, and it can look like aggressive behavior to them, but sometimes it's just a matter of explaining why the dog is doing what they're doing. Uh, but the nice thing is oftentimes the behavior change strategies are very similar and whether it's predation or dog, you know, that's afraid of cats, for instance, there's a lot of similarities. And that's, that's the beauty of positive reinforcement based training is that it's hard to mess it up, <laughs> you know, with, with, with aggression cases, especially because a lot of times we're just trying to change the dog's association with a particular uh, stimulus or a threat that they perceive in the environment. And so if we're treating, using treats to change that perception or we're reinforcing desirable alternative behavior, you know, don't chase the cat, just look at it (laughs) is a good alternative behavior. It's you're still accomplishing the same goals. So when, when it comes to working with aggression or aggression cases that are brought to you, is, is there like, would you say that part of it is looking at what's normal versus abnormal for that dog? 
and then also kind of the degree to which that might be learned. Um, for, for instance, like, you know, as you're saying, you know, some of the, the behavior of aggression, it can be normal in context. So like a situation I think of is like the dog that maybe tells the other dog to back off because they need a little bit of space. That can still be an appropriate behavior in some cases. Um, and in many cases, it may be the the pet guardian is like, oh, I, but I just really want my dog to get along with all dogs. But, you know, that other dog may be really pushy, may be inappropriate. And so sometimes there can be normal situations where that dog is showing aggressive behavior. Um, and then, you know, the abnormal side, like, you know, where, you know, the dog maybe is showing it more often or more pronounced. And, and you know, and not that it's abnormal for the dog, because as you said, it, it becomes just this, this way that they get what they need in that situation, which can be space. It can be that feeling of relief from that frustration or fear that they feel. Like, how do you navigate that? That's such a great question, because for me, I tend to normalize almost all aggressive behavior because it's important for us to understand what's happening and to kind of take it from the dog's point of view in many cases. So what may seem abnormal to us as humans is often based on our own sort of ideologies and, and our perception of how dogs should exist on our planet, right? And we put our own sort of rules and expectations on dogs, but oftentimes the aggressive behavior they're displaying is very normal in, in the sense that it's behavior used to avoid a threat. And if you look at all other species, including humans, we're looking at, you know, if we respond in a, an aggressive way to a threat, that would be normal in many cases, right? So if somebody, you know, breaks into our home and we yell at them or do other things to make them go away, nobody would say, oh, that was abnormal for you to yell at that strange person that walked into your home, right? And so same thing with dogs. We sometimes think, oh, is that abnormal? You know, the dog is uh, growling at somebody that's just trying to pet it. Or, um, you know, there's a child just trying to hug the dog, and which is not a good idea. <laughs> but mm -hmm. it's just, we might say, oh, that's so abnormal. Why wouldn't the dog tolerate that or, you know, just take that? So for me, I think, and, and I'm sure you the same, see the same thing when you're discussing your cases with your clients or discussing what's happening in a case, a lot of our job is to to explain and normalize what's happening so then it makes much more sense for that particular client and then makes more sense to for the treatment plan or the, the behavior change strategy that we're going to incorporate for that dog so uh because again going back to that emotional piece right there's so many emotions in these cases uh the more we can normalize and make things feel a little bit just just a little better for the client can go such a long way no, that's definitely so true. And I think even in those situations where the dog is reactive or, you know, responds, you know, with, with different behaviors of aggression, like barking, growling, you know, maybe, you know, hackles up, you know, when they're getting emotionally aroused and, and responding behaviorally. And for that dog that even is, you know, reacting at multiple things, whether it's sounds, it's sights, it's just, you know, has a lot of different, what we as trainers would call triggers. So like different stimuli that they see that are upsetting to them that they respond to. So even in that situation where, you know, you have a golden retriever, for instance, they're known for, you know, being just a friendly, amicable dog, like love everyone. But there are those golden retrievers who, who aren't that way. I've worked with numerous goldens who, you know, do have aggressive um, behaviors and, and show aggression in different circumstances. And, you know, part of that can be, you know, in one situation, it was underlying pain that was causing the dog to react. In another, it was like 
uh, just very, very limited socialization, and especially during that early time of life that is so key for them. So have, have you had success in being able to help that person normalize understanding their dog, even when the behaviors maybe go outside of the norm of what they expected when they were getting that dog? Yeah, I think because uh, again, going back to the initial perceptions of what they're they think of when they're getting their own dog or a particular breed of dog or um, even where they're getting their dog from, sometimes it might be a little bit based on what they've experienced in the past. So, because everybody's had that, you know, they let's say like, I have a client that has a German Shepherd or something like that, and they they have that comment. I've had five German Shepherds before, and none of them were ever aggressive, um, and you know, you sometimes don't explain, well, you sometimes will have different, you know, breed matters, but it's, you're going to have each dog is going to be an individual, just like every person is an individual. And we can't, you know, generalize the behaviors of, of a particular breed to that one dog. Does it matter? Sure. But it's not the only thing. So learning genetics, um, you know, health, all of those things you mentioned can impact behavior. So for me, it's, it's helping them not just think in terms of abnormal, normal, it's more of understanding all those variables that can impact behavior, how, how it can impact, you know, how that dog is, is going to respond when they're threatened by something. So an example, going back to the golden retriever, they might've gotten that dog as a puppy, for instance, eight week old golden retriever, great breeder, lovely lines, everything is going well for them. But for that particular dog, it may be just one or two experiences of a child reaching into their food bowl while the dog is eating as a puppy and the dog perceives it as a threat. And the next thing you know, the dog growls or, you know, uh, barks at the child and the child goes away. Guess what the dog or the puppy, I should say, has just learned. So that's a learning experience for that one particular golden retriever. Um, and sometimes it may be something like genetics coming in where it's a livestock guardian dog, right? Barking at people approaching the property. That might not be learned behavior. That might just be sort of quote unquote wired into their behavior patterns. And we might see it there. So I think I think again for for my clients one of the most helpful things I can do is just help them really understand why it's happening because again they they come across it, it can feel very sudden um especially if it's directed at them you know that or you know why does my dog the dog bites the hand that feeds them sort of saying and again explain to them why their dog is doing what they're doing is it's such a valuable thing to help owners with so what are other things do you think in general people get wrong about aggression? Great question. <laughs> a broad one, which uh, let me think about this one for a second. <laughs> um, I think, I think the, the most common one is that the dog is sort of being spiteful or, you know, taking things out on them in terms of retribution or like they're thinking about that, but dogs aren't thinking in terms of ethics, right? Mm -hmm. They're going to be thinking again. It's that that's, it's much more primitive than that. It's much more where the dog is just perceiving something as a threat or for their own safety in most cases. And so sometimes I see, or, or, or like, I'll give you another example, like a intra-household dog, dog aggression case, you know, two dogs fighting in the home. A lot of my clients are like, oh, one's top dog or one's being alpha or one's, you know, this and that, all these fallacies that have been dispelled. And their mindset goes to that. They're kind of thinking much more holistically. They're looking at the whole relationship picture, which is important, but sometimes it's more simple. It's much more, uh, you know, the, 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 the reason for those conflicts are often just contextual. Like there was a 
resource in between the dogs or something. So it has nothing to do with, you know, which dog considers themselves higher in a, like a some mythical hierarchy. It is just situational. It's like, okay, there's something of value in between them. People do it with each other too. So dogs can, can certainly compete over resources. So I think, um, again, it's, it's making it more... Sp- not as complicated <laughs> as it needs to be because aggression is a complicated thing for, for a lot of people starting to start to learn about it or understand it, but it doesn't have to be oftentimes it's much more simplistic. So that's probably the number one thing I see uh, where it's, it complicates things. Whereas um, if we keep it simple, it's a lot easier to understand. So I think it is hard for people, especially when, as you said, it's like biting the hand that feeds you. It's hard to not take it personally sometimes for people when they have this great relationship with their dog or say that the dog is uncomfortable, they growl or snap. And then soon after they may come up towards a person and try and repair that relationship. And so it's like, it's very, I I see that kind of confusion, like, why do they growl? Why do they do that? But then they want love right after. Like, how do you explain that scenario? Ooh, yeah. So, and that's a really confusing one for some people because they're like, I don't get it. It just seems, but that's, you know, dogs are really good about doing that. Sometimes they can sometimes, um, you know, they're kind of living in the moment. So they, yes, they're going to remember those incidents. So you, if you're, if you're listening in and you have a dog that does that, still be careful, you know, exercise caution because just like people stress can take a little time or for the dog to feel a little bit better about the situation. But a lot of dogs are very resilient, just like people, you know, they can have that moment of, you know, a couple in the home, Hey honey, do the dishes. And then five minutes later, Oh, look, I made you this nice, you know, dessert. And it's, it just, life goes on. So dogs can be very much the same uh, in, in terms of resiliency and, in, in, in uh, you know, cause, it, cause here's the thing. Aggression can be very offensive towards a human, right? So a dog growls at us or, barks and lunges or snaps at us. And we're like, oh my gosh, what a, what a vicious animal, right? And that's sometimes what the mind goes to as a human, because we're, we're wired to be afraid of things with teeth, right? And be cautious around things with teeth, especially if it's presented to us in that offensive way. But in the, if you flip it around, it's actually quite normal. And we have to be quite thankful of dogs for not going any further in many cases. So the dog growls. Well, thank you for just growling instead of biting me or snarling or snapping or doing anything else instead of biting me. It's a lovely thing. (laughs) And dogs exercise actually much more restraint than most humans do. One point that you made was about people having this idea of like one dog being the alpha and, you know, one dog being top dog and this idea of dominance, like Like, you know, I I still think that that's a, even though there's a lot more information out about that, I still think that clients generally think that that's still a thing. So how, how do you explain that? What's the real truth behind that? Yeah. So it's, it's one of those sort of stories that's been pervasive in the dog training community for quite some time. And it originally started with the alpha wolf studies, which have also been debunked um, by the original author. And um, now it's not to say dominance doesn't exist. I do want to put that out there because we don't want to throw it out completely. Dominance is a it's a concept that exists in, in the ethology world, especially. So if you study ethology and you're looking at it and it's quite simply, it just one of the most simplistic definitions is priority access to a particular resource. So whether it's mating or food resources or something like that. So that's what that means. It doesn't mean that one dog is going to have 
life resources and access to everything in life over one other dog just because we assign them that alpha role. It is very fluid. It's going to change depending on the resource. It's going to change depending on the dog. And it's just, it's so, there's no, we, we want to avoid ascribing like this. You're the leader or you're the number one uh, because that puts it in a definitive way, right? It's like saying you're always going to be funny or you're always going to be sad. You're not always sad. You're not always funny, right? And the same thing for dogs. So uh, because the harmful part of it is when we start using our own behavior or would do certain things to try to establish this mythical dominance over a dog where it makes no sense at all, right? So like pinning the old alpha rolls or pinning the dog on its back, which we of course never recommend, um, is, is one of those exact reasons that people can get bitten. So they say, I need to be more dominant because my dog is growling at me. Uh, and maybe later on we tragically discover that the dog has like a hip issue or is in pain. And so the dog is growling because we try to just pet it on the on the top of their head, which we don't recommend either, but they, we try to pet the dog and the dog growls at us. And then we ascribe it as dominance. Um, and then we do what's worse. We're like, Oh no, the dog's being dominant. So now I've got to pin the dog on the back to show my boss and the dog's already in pain and we're just making it worse. So you can see this sort of really awful spiraling of events that gets worse and worse. And we're doing it in the name of dominance. So that's one of the most significant issues I see is people. It's what people do in the name of trying to be quote unquote alpha or dominant over their dog by following things they might have read about or seen on TV and things like that. So yeah. Um, if somebody's bringing up that, that issue, that word <laughs> or that, uh, question to me, I'll quickly explain it to them, but I don't generally go too far into many rabbit holes because I think just that concept alone can take a little time uh, during a consult, <laughs> as you know, and we want to be efficient with our time. So uh, for me, unless I feel like it's really impacting the case, I don't, you know, somebody will say like, I'm, um, you know, I need to be more dominant or if they're not doing anything, then I'll be like, no, you don't need to do that. Don't worry about that. Well, I've got a, I've got a much friendlier strategy for you. So, and then I just continue on with, with that line of thinking. I love that. Same, same positive. A, a question I have is, you know, first of all, what are the risks? I think that's important to talk about the risks of using a more dominance or like force-based approach with dogs. Like what would be the risk of doing a stare down with your dog uh, or doing like the hold downs or the, the rolls, things like that, that would be more in that line of, of training? It's if the easiest way for me to answer that is that think about what causes many aggressive behaviors in dogs in the first place. So if you look at, um, you know, a dog that is, um, has issues with handling. So people touching it or touching the collar or harness, or we try to, or we've got a dog that's growling cause they're on the couch. And then we go try to remove, remove the dog from the couch or something like that. All of that is how you can actually create aggressive behavior. And so the similarities there with pinning a dog down or staring it in the face or, you know, all these things that are almost exactly the same as how we actually can create aggressive behavior. That's the number one reason why we want to avoid it because quite often we are going to either 
make the situation worse or start new issues. So the dogs, so the dog might be like, okay, I don't want you taking off me off the couch. So that's one reason I'm going to growl at you, but I also don't want you pinning me. So now I've got, I've found another reason to growl at you. I don't want you staring me in the face with this whole eye stare thing. Um, you know, cause primates and dogs are wired differently when it comes to looking at each other in the eyes. Right? Yes, definitely. <laughs> humans, humans have different reasons to look each other in the eyes. So it's, very offensive to dogs. And then the dog might be saying, okay, now I've got another reason to growl at you. Um, Cause I don't know, the dog's not thinking, oh, uh, they're just trying to be dominant over me. They're thinking you're threatening me or you're doing something that's either painful or aversive or scary. Um, and now I need to respond to preserve my own safety. So um, that's the number one reason for why I uh, highly recommend against any kind of those techniques that include dominance or really any, any strategy that's going to uh, add pain or something the dog finds threatening or aversive in any situation because of those risks. I love that. Yeah. And it, it does, it, it creates conflict. It creates confusion. It's that relationship where we want to have that love with our pets, but then we're punishing the very thing that we want, which can be things like, you know, having that eye contact where we have connection and as a, a positive reinforcement based trainer, it's like, you know, that's actually something we teach purposely is to teach them to give us eye contact so we can get that focus, turn it into a positive, what could be threatening. We want to make it something that, you know, the dog is comfortable with because eye contact itself, as you know, can be such a trigger or a cause for a dog to feel upset, to become alarmed, to then, you know, show those aggressive behaviors because they feel threatened. So we want to try and transform some of those things. That's that's such a great point because you're you're also mentioning you know the things that we might want to use at other times. So like like if I was to grab a dog's collar to pull them off the couch or then maybe pin them on the floor, there's other times I'm going to want to be able to touch my dog's collar, not be doing any of those things with those intent. Maybe I just want to go for a walk and I'm trying to clip my leash to the dog's collar. And the next thing you know, the dog bites or growls at that person because they're just trying to clip a leash on. That's what can seem really confusing to some clients. They'll be like, I don't get it. He loves the walks. And all I was trying to do was take him for his walk that he loves. And I was just trying to put the leash on. And then he bit me when I was just holding the collar steady. And that's the reason for that is because the dog is saying, I don't like it when you touch my collar because that means icky things are going to happen when you do that. So um, it, it, it's such a good point there you make is that it has those side effects as well. It's like anything that looks very similar or even remotely similar in some cases to what you did in the past can still trigger the aggressive behavior, even though your intent's totally different. So yeah, good. I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> so I have kind of a complicated question for you. I know it's not an easy answer, but it's one that I get quite often and it comes in, in different forms, but essentially it will be a lot of times this is, somewhat stereotyping because sometimes you can have it, you know, be one or the other, but a lot of times it will be uh, two spouses. One will be the, you know, the more, I guess, uh, domineering kind of, you know, the, the enforcer essentially. So they, they will be the one that will use more of that traditional approach where it is a little bit more force and fear base. And the other one is trying to use, adopt this, this different way of being able to lead their pet that really is, you know, it stems from the dog wanting to do what the person wants them to do, uh, because we're motivating them through these positive consequences that they get more of what they want. We slowly and gradually get them accustomed to different things. But sometimes I'll see conflict between the two spouses where, and sometimes frustration on the part of the, the person who's trying to adopt this new method, where 
the person who is using more of that traditional force-based approach will the dog will seemingly behave better for them. They'll go out in the walk with that dog. The dog doesn't react to people, doesn't react to other dogs. And when I see that and I'm seeing what's happening, I'm seeing more of, okay, the dog's inhibiting their behavior. The, the underlying emotion is still there. They just, and, and they still don't have a great coping techniques. It's just that, you know, in that moment, the dog is as seemingly behaving or seemingly better, but it's, you know, it's, it's definitely, it's a band-aid over an even bigger problem is what I see. Uh, and, and a lot of times it's actually worsening that, that problem and, you know, furthering like that conflict that the dog feels, because if I can't get both people on the same page, it's that confusion for the dog with, you know, they're learning a, a different way. They're, you know, we're trying to adopt this new approach. And so the other person may be working with the dog. And uh, what I see is that the dog seems a lot more comfortable with that person. So it's almost like, um, I, I look at it almost like a child-parent relationship where the child may, may feel more comfortable with that certain parent or with that certain teacher where they can actually express what they're really feeling rather than being inhibited. But to like the outside eye, it may seem that the dog is just better behaved with the person who uses more of that force-based approach. So I would just love to hear your thoughts on that because I, I do get that quite frequently and that's usually something that that we try and work through. Yeah, it's, it's a it's a common issue with partners in a relationship that might have differing approaches to how training should work. And, and it's one of the, you know, dog training or judge dog working with dogs or being with dogs in general, everybody has their opinions, right? Because many of these clients have grown up with dogs. They've learned techniques either from their parents or their friends. They're, they've been influenced in how they their relationship is with their dog and how they feel behavior and training should work. And so you often see that you know, dichotomy in the relationships. And so what I like to do is number one, don't point fingers at anybody ever, regardless of how bad you think somebody's being, um, that that's quick way to, uh, kind of drive a wedge in between yourself and that person you're trying to make change with. Um, but the second thing I like to do is lots of analogies. I find that human analogies work really well for people to understand the concepts. And so like behavior suppression, what you're talking about there, like the dog being inhibited or not wanting to express certain behaviors, it's it's that it's because it's not that punishment doesn't work. Punishment works. That's from an applied behavior sense, it works. It's definitely one of the things that can change behavior. However, it often doesn't change the underlying association. And in aggression cases, that is what's motivating or fueling the behavior in the vast majority of aggression cases. It's some underlying reason the dog has. And usually it's the dog has a negative association or is fearful or feeling threatened or unsafe around that particular trigger. So when somebody comes in and suppresses the behavior, yes, it looks good because the dog's not barking, growling, lunging because I'm doing A, B, or C to the dog because that'll suppress the behavior for that moment but I'm doing nothing to change how that dog feels about that situation. And to truly address the behavior, I'm going to want to change how that dog feels. So I use analogies. And if it's like, um, I'll give you an example. I had this kind of, this couple is this big sort of burly, like football loving kind of, you know, picture like just real loud kind of, you know, again, kind of generalized stereotyping here, but, but you can picture like what I'm talking about. And, um, he was very forceful, you know, yelling at the dog and doing those kind of things. And his wife was, um, uh, you know, what you're describing there, lots of treats, very, um, you know, uh, 
positive reinforcement based with the dog. So whether attention, using lots of food, those kind of things. And so they, it's not that they were arguing too much, thankfully, because that can be an issue in some cases where they really have their own opinions about the dog. But this one, they, you know, they're open to, to some change. So, so the analogy I used with, with that guy was, um, you know, let's talk to him about what he likes to do in his off time. And he's got like this, this, um, uh, sort of not club, but kind of a bar he likes to go to and, I said to him, okay, perfect. So one of the things you could think about is that if you were, if you had some, some other guy there that you constantly saw at the bar, but he was always talking smack to you, like, right. And he was always like curling insults at you. Um, and you want to really lay into this guy, but you couldn't because the bouncer there, every time he started to speak up or do anything, he'd whack you on the back of the head. Right. So every time you try to do something, so pretty soon you're going to stop doing it. And he's like, yeah, you know, you're, you're right. I probably wouldn't do it because there's the, the threat of the bouncer there. So I said, that's kind of what's happening. Just like the threat of the bouncer where the, you know, he's suppressing the behaviors. He's making it where you're not actually doing it. Or you can just interchange bouncer with somebody, a law enforcement officer standing there watching you. But, but this person's actually smacking you in the back of the head every time you try to do something. Now, if you were to change it up where this other guy is... Every time you do a behavior that is reasonable, you extend a hand to shake that person's hand to try to make things better. The bouncer is now giving you stacks of $100 bills, right? For you doing the most appropriate behavior. And then maybe you try to strike a nice conversation. You say something like, hey, I didn't really mean to be offensive to you. Or, or the person starts to talk back to you and you start to respond in a nice way. And the bouncer again starts giving you $100 bills. Next thing you know, you're going to change how you feel about that person. And then if that person starts giving you $100 bills too, it accelerates the process. And so that changes how you feel. The whole reason for you wanting to pick a fight with that other guy at the bar in the first place. And now the bouncer also doesn't need to smack you in the back of the head. They've come up with a totally different behavior change strategy. So I find that those kind of analogies really help clients um, grasp the concept, but without blame, putting any blame on anybody, without saying you're doing wrong or you're doing this or you stop doing that. You can just use those analogies and it, it often, not every time, but often will help to change the client's perception of it. So say that you have a client that comes in and they say, Hey, I want you to fix my dog's aggression. I want you to, to cure it. But what do you say to that? Like, is that something that can be cured or totally just fixed and resolved and it's done with? So more analogies, <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the, you know, it's just like what I try to think of, I ask them, you know, do you have any habits or behaviors or hobbies or things like that? And they'll give me an answer, you know, maybe they've smoked cigarettes for a long time or something like that. And so I'll say, you know, it's a behavior that we can work with to extinguish. So we try to get you to stop smoking cigarettes, right? But that is always there in your repertoire. It's not like you're going to forget how to pick up a cigarette or light a cigarette. You're always going to remember how to do that. And there may be situations that present themselves where you're going to have a terrible urge to pick up a cigarette again, right? And so we never get rid of the behavior or eliminate or fix it, right? We make it much less likely though. So same thing for the aggression. But here's the thing with aggression is that it's a again a normal response for the vast majority of all animals living on this planet to respond to a threat or else we wouldn't survive right so if we didn't use aggression every once in a while in our lives we actually have a less likely chance of survival because of when we need it you know somebody comes up to you and is ready to punch you in the face in the street because they don't like the way you looked at them or something like that 
we may need to respond aggressively to that threat, you know, if we can't, if if we don't have that flight option. So fight flight just for dogs, just like in dogs. If you remove that flight option, you're often just left with the fight option. Uh, you can freeze or fidget through some of the other apps, but you might choose to fight. And that's going to be a very normal response for you as the human. And the same thing for dogs. So when somebody says, you know, I want, I want to uh, fix this behavior, I will explain to them that it's, again, normal adaptive coping mechanism for any animal when they are threatened or feeling threatened by a stimulus. So uh, I think it's important to understand it's it's never cured or fixed because it's normal behavior. It's in our repertoire. Uh, we just, again, set them up for success by making it much less likely for them ever feeling the need to display aggression. And we do that by changing how they feel about that particular thing. You know, Uncle Bob walking through the front door is not a bad thing anymore for you. In fact, it's a good thing when Uncle Bob comes through the front door because he's always bringing treats or he's predicting treats or something good happening and he's no longer a threat. So now what we've done, it may seem like we've fixed, big air quotes there, fixed the issue, uh, but it's actually, we're just reducing the likelihood of the dog going after Uncle Bob based on what we've done for training and of course, managing the scenario well. So how do, does having a realistic expectation come into training? So for instance, say you have someone that says, hey, my dog is aggressive with other dogs, but I want them to go to doggy daycare. I want them to go to the dog park or I'm you know, merging households with some other dogs and you know, they haven't had these, you know, a great history with other dogs or say it's the, the dog that is you know, fearful and, you know, reactive towards people and, and show some aggressive behavior. And they want the dog to be able to be okay with everybody that comes in. They have kids, they have their kids' friends. And I, I definitely have seen, uh, felt that myself where I'm trying to set these realistic expectations for people. Like how, how does that come into play when it comes to, to what you do? Yeah, it's a it's really important for especially for any anybody that's a professional listening in. This is a big one for you guys. It's so important to set realistic expectations because if you don't, you run the risk of feeling like you're a failure or getting that burnout or compassion fatigue that many of us get as professionals in this industry. Uh, and because the reason why is because they, your client might have a very lofty goal or expectation, whereas you are seeing it in a different light for that particular case and what might be reasonable for them to achieve based on your experience with those types of cases. So, um, and that can be quite damaging to to not only the case, but you know your relationship with that owner if they're on a completely different page. So one of the most important things you can do is get on the same page with your client as far as expectations. So you ask questions. You know, what would you like to see happen in this case? What would you? What would a desirable outcome be for you? You know, and then you also ask about their lifestyle. So sometimes you do have to get into some personal questions. But you know, how often do you have visitors? What do you? What do you see for your dog? Do you see you know a lot of other interactions? And, um, and how much time do you have to spend? You know, working on this issue. How reasonable is it for you to manage this during this whole journey? Uh, with your dog. And so by asking those questions, now you start to set some parameters, again, without necessarily criticizing the client for something they may not see in the same light as you. You get on the same page and now we're kind of working towards the same mutual goal. And sometimes our jobs, again, as trainers and consultants is to help 
a client sometimes realize what might be reasonable and how behavior works really. So for the dog you were just talking about that just, you know, they've injured other dogs and maybe they have had a dog park experience and they've injured other dogs and the client's like, let's just go back. I just want them to be able to go back to the dog park or dog daycare or, uh, you know, be a therapy dog or kind of have these really lofty expectations. It may not be reasonable for that particular dog. So my job as the consultant would be to explain, you know, what would be reasonable what maybe here's the other big thing is offer alternatives as well. So, you know, the dog that can't be a therapy dog might be doing well with some other type of dog sports scent work or something that's going to be an engaging activity for that client and their dog to do, but not necessarily interact with other dogs or, um, you know, one of the, one of those lofty goals they had in mind. So offering alternatives can to, can be very important as well, because sometimes it's just a matter of replacing activities that, that the client has in mind, or maybe they don't even know about some, some of these awesome things that are happening out there with dogs. So, yeah. Um, so realistic expectations by far, one of the most important things you can do right from day one. So don't wait until your third or fourth consult. Do it first time you meet with a client. And if you're a client listening or a pet owner listening in, spell out your expectations to your trainer or consultant if you are working with one. Uh, and that's going to really save you a lot of headaches down the line. I think that one of the, the things that, that happens is there's like this cookie cutter idea of like what a good dog is or what a happy dog is. So you know, for the dog that's a good dog, they get along with every dog, they get along with all people, they, you know, the the dog is happy if they're going to the dog park. And sometimes it's like almost this burden, I feel like on the person's heart, like, oh, I'm not doing a good job, or it's my fault, or my dog's not happy because he's not doing these things. Or like, how do you kind of help someone? Or how can someone like be able to really reflect on what their, who their dog is individually and like really kind of finding, finding that realistic expectation, but also like that way to like really help them to live a happy life and, and to have a good life, even if it's not that cookie cutter version of, of what they may expect. Cause I feel like sometimes there's almost like that shame that someone has like, Oh, I'm, I'm bad because my dog is acting in this way. And it, it almost is like a, a personal reflection upon them. I feel like is it, it's that feeling. And, and even though it's not true, it, it still is like, you know, the, that, you know, it's like the dog is reacting badly because the owner isn't doing the right thing or, you know, that it's, it's this, um, yeah, this misconception about that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to me. You know, I think it's a two layered question there as far as, you know, I think with this cookie cutter view of dogs, I kind of like to say there's, there's billions of dogs on the planet and there's billions of people. And so when somebody's looking for a friend or a partner or you know, it's, it's the same thing. It's like, oh, if they're all the same, then it doesn't really matter who you end up with. Right. So if it's, if it's cookie cutter humans, cookie cutter dogs, <laughs> right. Which I might immediately relate to. That's totally not true. Right. It's like, so everybody's so uniquely different. Right. And, and the same thing can happen with dogs. You know, you, you pair up with a dog, you find a dog and it may not be like the last dog you had or the dog you're expecting, uh, but you can certainly work with things. You can certainly make changes, but that's that's a big part of it. It's going back to that expectation piece, realistic expectations, and sometimes it may not be a good fit, and that's okay because you know there's sometimes it's it's not safe. It's very risky for some of these cases, and and that's okay. You know, it all depends on the situation and the, and the scenario, but. Going back to that original question, each dog's going to be unique. And so I will remind clients of that. And then I also 
remind most of my clients that it is not their fault. Nobody's going out and saying, oh, I want to get a dog because I want to have the most aggressive dog that you can get. Right? I want to get a dog and start walking on leash so that it can start barking and lunging and pulling me off my feet. Right? Nobody's going out and getting a dog and saying they want that in most cases, right? unless they're looking for a specific like guard dog or something. But it's, it's most of the time people aren't signing up for that. So vast majority of the time, it's not the client's fault. They're just, uh, it's just what they're, the dog that they have in front of them, the individual dog that they have. Um, now, sometimes I don't want to make just a blanket statement to say it's not ever the client's issue is sometimes it's what the client can be doing like alpha rolling or using dominance techniques that we'll need to change. Uh, it could be exposing the dog to certain scenarios that we can manage. Uh, but you know, I never fault my clients because nobody, the vast majority of people are not purposely saying, I want to cause issues with my dog. Most of them are saying, I want to fix this. I want to help my dog. So, um, so if you're listening in, you're worrying about how much of your own behavior is impacting your dog's aggression issues, most of the time, not much. Uh, there are some things, sure, but we can change those. We can work on those, right? So, um, so I think I think a lot of owners will tend to blame themselves or say, oh, "I'm just being, I'm not this or I'm not that." But you know, all of those things can be can be adapted and, and fixed over. That's so well said. I, I love that. And, and it really does. It removes that shame because I feel like so many times too, it's like, that's what keeps a person from taking their dog out in the walk or that keeps them from going to the trainer, or the behavior consultant, or even talking to their vet about some of the behavior issues that they're having is because it almost feels like um, sometimes it's that idea that's like a personal reflection on their own failure. When, as you said, there are so many different factors and a question I have for you, one, one scenario I, I find fairly common is the person who has a reactive dog when they go out on walks. And for them, it's a very public display of aggression where the dog is barking, spinning, lunging, uh, kind of going crazy at the end of the leash. So a couple of questions on this, since it is so common. Um, first of all, how do you help that person to feel better? Because I've, I've found that a lot of times they have so much shame, they're so embarrassed, it's so stressful for them. How do you like help them to stay calm and relax in that situation to have better perspective? And then secondly, if you could just give us a few tips of like what a person who has a dog and that, that behaves in that way, just what they may try with their dog that could be really helpful to start off with. Yeah, I think the, the number one thing to do is first, make sure that that owner feels safe in the first place, because if they don't feel safe, meaning in both emotionally and physically, then it's going to, they're not going to want to go out there. And that's, that's normal. It's, it's very normal not to want to put yourself in a situation. Same thing for our dogs, right? They don't want to put themselves in a situation that's unsafe. And when I say unsafe, maybe they may physically pulled down to the ground or the dogs redirected and bitten them, or, um, you know, it's just, it's just a tough time physically, but also emotionally, you know, they can, it can be very embarrassing. It's like, you know, the dog's barking and lunging. Everybody's like looking at you, like what's wrong with your dog? Or you, you know, they give you comments like you need to train your dog and all these things that can happen. And so you end up avoiding the walks, right? Because of this, these, you know, this safety issue, right? So I want to make sure I set things up to be as safe as possible. 
from both of those angles. And so I'll scout out locations or I'll work with the client in places that are very safe in both of those aspects, whether it's starting inside their house or just in their driveway or their backyard and working on loose leash walking skills or things like that. Maybe I'll start with that and gradually get them back into the shallow end of the swimming pool, which might be just in front of their house on the street, right? And then you eventually your goal is to be able to tread water in the deep end, which might be walking all the way around that whole block that you used to walk around, but now you're avoiding it. So safety is very, very important. Um, the next thing I do is often model what I want them to do rather than them having to do it. So if they feel they're not feeling safe about it, I will say, okay, if the dog's okay with me doing it, I will work with the dog on leash and sort of show them what to do first and say, here, look, your dog's being successful here. Now I think you'll be able to do it. Um, so I think modeling and showing them that their dog can be successful is important. And as trainers, we should be able to set things up as best we can to set that dog for up for success so we don't see any kind of reactive behavior. Uh, the next thing I do is then... Uh, get out there with the client, but put a little bit of training wheels on there. So what I mean by that is sometimes I'll put two leashes on the dog. The client has one, but I'm actually the one sort of doing the quote unquote control or I'm the safety backup. So that way, if the dog does lunge or something, I'm there on the, on the second leash, but the owner now has that feeling of a little extra security because I'm there just in case something happens. But the second leash actually is what's very much keeping everything's much more safer for that client. So that that the clients sometimes feel like, oh, I am doing this and the leash is loose and my dog's not reacting. This is great. And so eventually you let them, you know, kind of handle the lead and take control. So baby steps can go a long way for those clients that are, especially when they're super embarrassed about it. And it's, it's tricky because it's very, if you're a trainer or pro listening, it's very, very important to remember that there's two ends of the leash. And uh, not only do we have to take the dog's safety into consideration, but the humans as well. So, uh, remember to concentrate on on both ends of the leash, right? I love that. I love that too, how, how that really goes into Fear Free, where it's not only the physical safety, but also the emotional safety for for not only the dog, but also for the person. That's such a good point. So for the person who does have the reactive dog on leash and say that they see people coming or there's a dog coming and that's causing the dog to react, like what is like, what is the cause of that? Uh, I mean, I know that there are so many different things, so it's hard to just say one thing, but uh, sometimes it can be really confusing and frustrating for the person to understand, why is my dog reacting? Yeah, so the two major, uh, the most common reasons for that kind of behavior is the dog's afraid of or worried about that particular thing approaching. Let's use an example, like another, another, um, another dog approaching. Um, so the dog's either afraid of that dog um, or feeling threatened by it. Um, or they actually really want to go see that other dog, so, but they can't because they're on a leash. So one is fear. What the first part I was talking about is fear-based. The second part could be frustration-based. The dog physically can't get to that thing. And that's the issue with leashes or barriers. They can often cause additional concerns with frustration uh, because the dog can't accomplish the goal. And that's the definition of frustration right? Dog can't physically get to accomplish their task that they have in mind. So, um, and the same thing with fear. If we have a leash on, we're removing that flight option. So the dog can no longer get away from the particular thing, especially if us as humans aren't noticing that and we continue moving towards that other dog, it's making things much worse. So uh, the dog's saying kind of, if I was to 
say what the dog was thinking. They're probably thinking, oh gosh, now I can't get away from this thing. So I guess I'm just going to have to bark and lunge at this other dog. And that makes them go away because my owner is usually going to pull me away or the other dog's going to say, oh, okay, I'll move away. So, um, so those are the two major kind of common con- reasons for that. But then the most common exacerbating factor is the leash itself. And then what people do with the leash, right? We as humans get naturally start to tighten up on the leash and we get more worried. And here's the big one where a lot of clients say, oh, I think it's because of me. You can sense my energy or something like that. But it actually is much more to do with the tactile cue of or the tactile sensation of that leash getting tight, which further restricts their ability to move to or away from that particular dog. So um, so yes, that's one where we do have to work with the humans <laughs> to teach them good leash handling skills, uh, but it's most often just because the leash is getting tighter or sometimes worse, it's the dog's been corrected or punished by the leash or leash corrections and things like that, which also make things worse. So uh, can make things worse. So, cause you're pairing a negative association with the arrival of the other dog. So you can see going back to our science-based conversation, you know, it's, it's Pavlovian conditioning, you know, 101 where it's, it's classical conditioning. If the dog starts to learn that bad things happen right after they see another dog, what is that dog going to learn? What's the association that's going to be created when I see another dog? bad things. My, my owner's going to yell at me or correct me on the collar or something like that. And so, uh, it's one of the fastest ways sometimes to create more issues for yourself. Absolutely. Such, such good points. So, so what, what is your general approach when it comes to leash reactivity? Like I know I'm sure there are so many different things, but just, just a few tips for someone, if they do have a leash reactive dog that they could try. Yeah. So the first thing of course is teaching the dog to walk nicely on a loose leash to begin with. So you can avoid some of the um, tight leash issues I was talking about. So you do that, you know, obviously without other dogs or distractions around first, Uh, just like any other training strategy, we teach a sit in the middle of our kitchen first, and then we try it at the dog park, right? So um, same thing with leash reactivity, got to get the loose leash walking skills down to, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect. No, it doesn't have to be perfect heel position or anything like that. We just want the owner to feel comfortable handling the leash, but also to remove that tightness on that leash and that tension that happens a lot. So that's first and foremost. The second thing is really the strategy of teaching your dog what you want it to do instead. And so there's actually a couple great resources. Um, There's tons of great resources now, but you know, if you're looking at like Leslie McDevitt's look at that or Alice Tong's engage, disengage, um, those are easy to find online or you can get Leslie's book control unleashed and they deal with very basic simple strategies of let's just teach your dog to look at the thing and then look back at you for the treat right so you're teaching the dog instead of barking lunging growling snarling snapping or trying to bite just look and then look back at me that's all you got to do so two things happen your dog is learning this new behavior. Just look and look back. And the second thing that's happening is your dog's learning this new association that, wait a second, every time I see another dog, I get a treat. There's another dog and I got another treat. Okay, so other dogs predict treats. So there's two things happening at the same time. Now, the secret sauce isn't so secret at all. It's just about making sure you're setting your dog up for success. So distance, duration and intensity are the three variables we can control. So I'll go over those real quick. Distance is how far obviously you are. So you might need 10 yards or 50 yards or 500 yards away from another dog, but that's okay. You start at that point and always work further from that because eventually you're going to be able to get closer and closer with each session. Uh, Duration is how long you work with the dog for. So if you're working around other dogs, um, I generally recommend no more than like 20 minutes of exposure. And that's with lots of breaks in between. 
it's going to vary depending on the dog. Some dogs can handle 20 seconds <laughs> for your first session and some can handle much longer, but premium level before your dog gets full of treats or kind of you get bored or the dog gets bored is to about 20 minutes. And then the intensity is the last thing you can control. So if you've if you've got a puppy sleeping on their dog bed from 20 yards away, you won't need as much that much distance maybe than a dog that is barking and lunging at your dog from 20 yards away. You might need to be 40 yards away. So watching the intensity of what that other dog is doing, and it could be subtle, it could be like the other dog just hard staring at your dog or looking in a certain way that we might wanna pay attention to. So you can control those three things, distance, intensity, duration. So as the pet owner or guardian, our goal is to make sure we're setting the stage for success for our dogs. Then you're gonna be able to go to what I was just talking about. Treat your dog for noticing those things. Mark and reinforce is really the op- the proper terminology there, but so you can mark the dog good every time you see another dog. They'll start to learn what that word means. They'll look back at you for the food because they know it's predictive of when they hear that word good. Uh, and so that, that new association created. See other dog, my owner says good, then I get a treat. See other dog, my owner says good, then I get a treat. And that's that's generally the, um, the tried and true method that I've worked with most of my cases with there's of course variations depending on the dog if they take food or not and a lot of other variables like that but that if you're listening in try that first because it works most of the time I, I really like how you talk too about setting the dog up for success and I, I think that that's so key in so many different areas of our pet's life but one aspect I was thinking about is the dog that is perhaps aggressive to certain strangers or people outside of their family. And so it can be, you know, sudden movements or the person coming in to pet them. And maybe it's at the front door if they're taking the dog out. How do you help the person to be able to, to better manage their pet's environment to prevent uh, basically putting the dog in, in that deep water, kind of putting them in the deep end of the pool and, you know, to the point where they need to react? Like, how, how do you like, what are some things that people can think about in order to better protect their pet? Yeah, so good good question. It's, it's um, for me, one of the first questions I ask a client or think about or kind of brainstorm with the client is, does your dog actually need to do this right now while, while you're kind of working through this whole issue, right? So does your dog need to go for a walk around the block every single day? Because sometimes the client, they just have the best interest of their dog in mind and they've had it maybe ingrained into them that exercise will exercise, 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 right? A tired dog is a good dog, but that's not always true. You know, a tired dog can be a stressed dog as well. So like that dog going out on the walks, it might seem tired, but it could be just ultra stressed from stepping out into that war zone that they have to deal with every day. Um, And so it might be our job as trainers to offer an alternative activity for the time being. Let's get you out of drowning in that deep end every single day. Let's get you back out to the shallow end or not even in the pool at all right now. And let's get you doing something else. Let's take up some running or some other exercise that's going to be helpful. So your dog might do like some scent work in the backyard, some enrichment games, scattering treats around, teaching your dog how to find things, training, agility, all these things that can happen right in your own space without having to go for walks. And guess what's going to happen? Your dog's going to be less stressed and more happy. So that's um, definitely something to to consider is alternative strategies when it comes to management. So um, the other thing to do is consider the um, the, the client's environment because it's not always possible, 
right? So I think some of the listeners might be living in a city, right? If you live in a big city like LA or something like that, and you're like, oh gosh, Mike, that sounds great, but my dog's got to go out to pee or poop. And I live in an apartment high rise building. What do you do then? And so I often work a lot uh, with my clients on handling strategies. So teaching them good handling skills for their dog, because there's a lot of different things you can do to, to help your dogs with their, um, in those environments like distractions using treats or how they handle the leash or how they use in the environment to prevent the dog from actually seeing something in the first place. So just like defensive driving, it's going to be different in LA versus if you're in the hillside of Kentucky or something like that, it's going to be much different. The level of handling or defensive driving you need to do same thing for your dog. So if I've got a client in that kind of environment where it's very difficult to manage things, I'll work with them on uh, proactive handling for those situations, whether it's when people come over or when people are, uh, you have to take the dog out for a walk or a potty break or something like that. Um, there's almost always a solution to help them. And then I'm sure on your side of the coin, Miguel, as they, uh, um, you talk about a lot, and at least with your colleagues, the behavior meds might need to be incorporated. So situational meds or durational meds can often be very helpful for our clients as well when the man when the environment's very difficult to manage so uh so there's, there's multiple ways to to address dogs when it comes to changing the environment and managing it especially when it's difficult absolutely and and as you mentioned stress really does play such a role if the pet is in this really high stress state they are are often going in that fight or flight mode and that survival type of, of thinking happens a lot and they're they're in that it's very difficult for them to learn new coping behaviors and it takes that higher level thinking which if they're highly stressed it's it impairs that thinking so i, I as you mentioned you know sometimes medications nutraceuticals can be so beneficial and just helping bring that pet's level of stress down enough and helping kind of normalize some of those chemicals in their brain and, you know, helping them to retain some of that serotonin, for instance, uh, maybe one type of medication that a, a veterinarian may prescribe. That can be so helpful for helping that pet to just be in that better state where they can, can make the, that higher level thinking, where they can make those, those better choices, where otherwise they're in that reactive survival mode. It's just, you know, almost like acting without thinking. It's just like reflexive kind of thinking and, and behaving. Exactly. Exactly. And so, and again, it's important the dog feels safe and medication can actually really help them with that aspect of it. So they can learn, as you were just mentioning. So what are, what are your final words for today for anyone listening in? Like if they are experiencing aggression with their pet or they are starting to see any areas of concern, or maybe, they, maybe there's been an, an issue that's been existing for a while. Like what are the steps for helping their pet? Um, most important thing is to learn the terminology that trainers use when they're talking about behavior change, because it's buyer beware kind of with when it comes to dog training. There's no regulation in our industry and so at this point anyways, uh, or very little. Um, and it's important because we, you could end up in the wrong hands, in other words, especially with aggression cases. Um, it's high stakes because not only is it risky from a liability, injury, all those standpoints, even um criminal uh, aspects these days in some rare cases, but you have to consider that. So you, you really want the best for your dog. I'm sure even, even, even if it was an aggression case, you'd want the best for your dog, of course. But if with aggression case, you really have to consider that because if you end up in the wrong hands with the wrong advice, 
um, you often see things get much worse. And unfortunately, as trainers, we see that a lot. We see it coming from other trainers. We take on cases and sometimes you see like really detrimental things being done. So for the listeners, if you're experiencing it with your own dog, uh, learn how to find the right resources, the right help. So uh, there's many organizations that certify trainers in you know, behavior consulting and working with aggression cases like the IAABC. Um, you know, certainly look at Veterinary Behaviorist, um, DACVB is a great organization. There's not enough of them, <laughs> but they're using the, the terminology and language you're using for it. You're looking for positive reinforcement-based solutions and strategies for aggression. And that's probably the most important advice I can give because um, once you know how to look for the help and where to look for the help and the, how to filter that information, then you're setting yourself up for success because... That's the most common issue I see is that people are desperate for help and they're just going to, if somebody's offering help, you're usually like, okay, great. This person's a trainer, just like saying this person's a doctor, right? But if somebody's a doctor, and fortunately medicine is heavily regulated in many ways, but if it wasn't, can you imagine, you know, I treat, I treat your, you know, migraine headaches with, you know, science and medicine. And then the next doctor is like, I train it with a hammer. You know, if I slap you on the head with a hammer enough times, it'll stop your headache. <laughs> and so which one are you going to go to? If you didn't know any better, you'd be like, oh, that hammer one sounds great because it's cheaper and it's faster and it's, you know, it probably works. Right. But that's why it's important to be a consumer. And so doing a little research is, is very, very important to do before you uh, jump into working with any trainer. That's a really, really good point. So I, I, as you mentioned, a lot of trainers, as you, like yourself, like myself, will have those dogs that have gone through other training that actually a lot of times can actually make it worse. So in my experience, it's, you know, the dog was put on a, a corrective collar and corrected every time for, for growling or for having a reaction, or the dog was put in a shock collar for reacting at other dogs. And it may have seemed better seemingly to the person because that bad behavior stopped, but I think that's where it also is so important to look at the dog's body language. Like even watching some of the TV shows, you know, if you turn off the sound, you just look at the dog's body language and, and really study up on what the dog is, is saying through their body language. You can see that dog is highly stressed. They aren't happy. It's, it's this state of like learned helplessness or tonic immobility where they just, it's almost like that, that state where they just it's so overwhelmed. They just don't even know how to like, like what to do. They can't even move. And you know, it's so important to be able to recognize those signs and, and to really uh, what I've talked to people a lot about is just being able to listen to their gut feeling on a situation because almost always that person, you know, it, it's hard because you have this person saying, I'm a professional, I'm a dog trainer. But as you said, there, are, you know, you can call yourselves uh, that without a certification. And, you know, those trainers and behavior consultants who do go above and beyond to get that education to continue learning to have have this code of ethics that they go by it's so important to be able to find them uh, but there is such a difference between one professional compared to another and so so are there certain like tools or techniques that you would recommend against and also what what should a person be looking for in terms of of what they want for their dog you i think the best way to think about tools is is the tool going to uh increase 
the likelihood of behavior or decrease the likelihood of behavior. Now, those are fancy like applied behavior analysis ways of putting it, but is it is it going to punish the dog for doing something you don't want or is it going to reward or reinforce the dog for something you do like? So, because there's a lot of different tools out there and there's a lot of euphemisms for different tools, like people call it different things like e-collars, some people call them shock collars, some call uh, remote training collars. And so it may be a little um, difficult to determine what kind of tools are actually being used, especially in some of the trainer market materials they don't always say what they're using so look for language that says you know our good questions to ask is two questions you know what what do you what do you do if my dog does something right and what do you do if my dog does something wrong and you don't have to even define what right or wrong is right because you have in your own mind but that person might have in their own mind what right or wrong is and you're going to get the response well if your dog does something wrong i'm going to correct it or i'm going to say no i'm going to use this tool or that too and that'll give you your answer the trainers you want to use or look for are going to be focusing on what your dog does right and reinforcing those things but they're going to be knowledgeable to enough to set the stage for success so that way your dog doesn't have to reach for the quote-unquote wrong behavior and so somebody that really knows what they're doing is going to be able to set set that environment well and um, look to reinforce the dogs and then of course changing the associations so through positive reinforcement food toys play um, all of those things off using their nose olfactory enrichment all those you know things that are the dogs like is what you want to use rather than what the dog's trying to avoid, right? So I know that you are really good about really being able to collaborate with the pet's veterinarian and really being able to come up with a plan and working on that together. Why is that so important when a person is looking at addressing an issue like aggression to work with the pet's vet? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because the one of the most common types of aggression cases is underlying medical issues or pain. And it can be really tragic. Again, going back to like that example I gave of the alpha rolls of a dog that has like an ear infection or something like that, that growls at us because they don't want to be touched. Oftentimes, because dogs, animals in general are pretty stoic. They're pretty good about saying, you know, I'm not in pain here because they mask it pretty well in a lot of cases. It's not, and it's also not obvious to us and, and in, including professionals. Sometimes we miss it. We, we don't see the underlying issues going on. And if we don't, properly diagnose that or if the veterinarian isn't involved to properly diagnose that we might be missing a big piece of the, the, the overall picture so if a dog's got let's say an acl issue and we're not noticing it we don't notice the subtle gait changes or issues with holding weight on a certain leg more than the other and the dog is growling or biting people what just touch it or pet it or go near it we're never going to really fix the issue unless we fix that underlying health issue right if the dog's in pain then doesn't matter how good of the training you do, you might make small little changes, but it's never going to fix the issue, the root cause of the issue. Just like fear, you know, pain is a significant driver of behavior. And I would argue sometimes more so than pain than fear, right? Because pain is it's very reflexive type of response where you're going to see when a dog is in pain or any animal. So um, so that's why it's so, so important to be working as a team with a veterinarian or a veterinary professional, veterinary behaviors. Fear-free, the fear-free folks, of course, <laughs> are um, what I recommend all the time because they also understand behavior. Um, and that's the thing with the veterinary profession is that not everyone is well-versed in behavior. There's some 
teaching about in the veterinary schools nowadays, but um, there's more specialists or people that focus on it more, just like the, the human medical profession. You know, you have doctors that are specialists. So I encourage somebody that has a, some behavior background or veterinary behaviors, and you work in conjunction to as a team, you know, pet, vet, and then the pet's owner, the vet, and then the trainer, right? As a team, um, sort of as this trilogy to to uncover all of the issues to make sure you're doing the best for that dog. And so um, definitely a vast majority of aggression cases, I'm referring to a vet to just rule out underlying medical conditions, uh, make sure the dog is healthy and there's nothing going on fueling that behavior. And sometimes even then we continue along, we might need to continue more exams. And so be prepared for that too. If you're a pet owner that's experiencing aggression issues, um, something to think about. It's just, you know, that, that awareness that yes, the vet is probably going to be, and I would recommend being involved in this whole process because they can often not only help with the diagnosing of things, but also behavior medication. If that uh, conversation comes into play. So helpful, Mike, any final words of wisdom for our listeners? Yes, there's help out there. <laughs> so I, I, you know, a lot of people are struggling. They're like, not sure what to do. Um, you know, I think the awareness that dog training and behavior help is, is available is certainly much more mainstream than it was 10 years ago. But still, I find that some clients may think of dog training as sit down, stay, come, walk nicely on a leash. But there are people that, that specialize or focus on this behavior, uh, these behavioral issues like separation, anxiety, or aggression. So uh, there is help out there for you. So um, you know, just gotta do your research to dig into the right resources, look at fear free, um, uh, resources. There's plenty of certified trainers that understand behavior. Look at, you can uh, check out the IWBC, um, CCPDT again, just screen for, for background and credentials and the wording you're looking for, uh, cause there's help out there. So, uh, you are not alone. Well, I know you've helped a lot of people today. Thank you so much, Mike. Such a pleasure and a joy to be able to talk with you again. Thanks so much for having me. It was a great conversation. Thank you for joining us for Happy Paws. We hope you continue tuning in every two weeks as we explore more about your pets. On the next episode, we're joined by Tabitha Kusera, licensed veterinary technician and a leading voice in cat behavior and enrichment. We'll be talking about ways you can connect more deeply with your cat, how to give them the enriching life they deserve, and of course, some useful tips to improve both of your lives. Make sure you subscribe to avoid missing out on any upcoming Happy Paws episodes. And if you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you took a minute and left us a review. For more content like this and much more, visit us at fearfreehappyhomes.com. Our music is by 310. That's number 3, the word 1, and the word O. Follow them on Instagram at 310official and listen to them on Spotify or wherever else you find your music.